Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. All of us know something about the worst of ourselves, but all of us struggle to hide from it. Arguably, a direct correlation exists between mental illness and our inability to be honest with ourselves about ourselves. Driven by fear, we deflect criticism by criticizing our own sins in other people. With very little information or context, we rush to condemn each other. Perhaps that's why we all assume that Jesus is talking about Judas when he says, Truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. We know that Judas cut a deal with the priests, so we assume that Jesus is talking about him, and we happily join in the disciples' chorus, Surely not I. But as you should now come to expect, in the Gospel of Mark, when anyone is sitting at table doing business with Jesus, nothing is ever as it seems. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 14, verses 22 to 31. You're listening to the Bible as Literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 199 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Last week, Richard, was a short episode. It gave us the opportunity to include our interview with Father Paul about his new book. But there were some ideas that you had started to touch on that I was hoping you could develop before we jump into verse 22 of chapter 14, specifically the betrayal committed by Judas in terms of the hospitality of Jesus and how hospitality functions in Near Eastern culture and still functions in modern Middle Eastern culture. So if you could just say a few words about that before we move into the heart of this meal, this table fellowship of Christ with his disciples. First of all, this conversation had to happen at a table. Because the table is where all life begins in this culture. And in modern Arab culture, you can see this. The worst insult you can show against somebody is to kick them out of your house, to refuse them a place at your table. This is the greatest insult. You can call somebody whatever. You might call them such and such at your table, but it is not as much of an insult as to tell them to leave the table. The table is where it all begins, and this is where it has to happen. And we have to emphasize this, as our professor emphasized with us, that Americans can't understand this. I mean, when our Palestinian friend in Nebraska saw these Americans driving around with a coffee in the car, he laughed because where he comes from, a coffee is something that two people share together at a table. There are no drive throughs in Damascus, in Jerusalem, 
because you eat at a table. You don't grab a bite. So the discussion around betrayal and loyalty and the testament to the work has to happen at a table. It does not infuse the table with some kind of mystical importance. It plays off importance that everybody already understood, except our modern society doesn't understand. This is what it means for people to have relationship with each other. And so you make or break relationships at the table. This is where it all comes down. They may have been going here and there to teach. They may have been traveling around to visit different communities that needed the word where they could sow the seed. But if they're going to have the serious discussion about who's in and who's out, it has to be at the table. This is why it plays out so much in Galatians. I know we could go on a long time about Galatians, but the table and the fellowship at the table are central. Business in these cultures doesn't take place on a WebEx call. Business in these cultures takes place at a cafe sitting at a table and you're not allowed to separate hospitality from the language of business you don't get down to business you do business while you're enjoying each other's hospitality and fellowship and that's why very often someone from a western culture who sits down with two people from the middle east having a cup of tea will walk away thinking that was a great cup of tea, where the other two folks from the region will walk away saying that we made a good agreement and we came to a good conclusion and I'm happy with the business outcome. There's even a language surrounding table fellowship. There's a way that things proceed that's not so obvious to us because we're so utilitarian. No, there's nothing wrong with American utilitarianism. It has its value. It can be very powerful and productive and forceful. But when it comes at the expense of table fellowship, that's when we begin to see the breakdown of our relationships and the breakdown of our communities. So I think there's wisdom in the ancient way of doing business. And this is why Jesus didn't turn Judas away. It's not because he was being particularly merciful toward him. I mean, we heard him say in a very harsh way, it would be better for this man had he not been born. It's that Jesus like all Middle Easterners, is doing business at the table fellowship. And he has to teach and explain and show that this one is a betrayer. And we explained last week he's showing it so that the others would know they could be betrayers too. Those of us hearing the story could be and are in fact frequently betrayers. Jesus is giving instruction at the table. The business of Jesus is not to make money. The business of Jesus is to teach. And so notice how, just as in Lebanon or Syria, the shopkeeper does business with you while you're drinking tea. Jesus does his business through the act of hospitality. He's inviting Judas to dip his hand in the plate. And in the way that he explains it while they're all sitting together, everyone gets the message that Judas is out when he puts his hand in. It's very powerful. What I found really interesting is that I was thinking Judas. We always think Judas because that's what the icon has. That's what the painting has, right? It says, one of the 12 that dippeth with me in the dish. They're all eating together. So while we find out in the end that indeed it is Judas, at this moment, it could be any of them. So 
Betrayal begins with false loyalty. And this is the point, is that the one who says, I'm with you, and then decides to go and sell you off, Judas knows that it's him. But the other disciples don't know that it's not them. We know, we are privy to the fact that Judas is the one who sold Jesus out. But Jesus, in the way that he does business, is threatening everybody. It could be anyone. Very, very nice observation. And it underscores what we've been saying, that if you're a member of a local church hearing this, you should assume that you're Judas. You should never discount the possibility that you're Judas at a minimum. And in the following passage, we'll see that Jesus starts to lay it on thick because it's no ordinary meal. He gives it a meaning. He gives the food and the drink a meaning to make the possibility of betrayal strike even deeper. While they were eating, he took some bread, and after a blessing he broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And here I just want to make an important point, and it's universal in all of the old world cultures. You never say a prayer without bread being on the table. And this is part of ancient human society. Bread and grain have been used for millennia, And bread has been a staple food for human societies for as long as we can remember, as old as our recorded history is. We know that we've used grains. And it was always the center of this fellowship. Even recently, I was talking to one of your exchange students. Without me prompting her, she said, in Georgia, we never begin a meal without bread on the table. So please understand that this metaphor of bread is powerful And of course, in the Middle East, you never say a prayer until someone puts bread on the table. It's because you give thanks for bread because bread provides life. It's a good source of energy and nourishment, and it's easy to mass produce. Society revolves around bread. And so much of the story up till now has been around seed and then grain and then harvest and about bearing fruit. The bread now is the fruit. This is what you've been working all these long months to produce, is the bread. And now he says the bread is his body. So now the next cycle begins. So you eat the bread. Why do you eat the bread? So that you can then go and sow. So you can do the work in order to raise up fruit for the next generation. So as his body is broken, what are you going to do with the fruit? Are you going to betray his brokenness? Or are you going to take in his brokenness in order to begin the cycle again? Which is what he's been trying to do since chapter 1. Are you going to give your life so that the seed will be sown and bread could be made for others so that other people could live? Or not? Bread, and this is the point of the cultural reference, Richard, bread provides life in a unique way. It's not just that you eat it and you live because you get calories from it. But you break bread with others together. It provides life in two ways. It brings people together in brotherhood and sisterhood. And it nourishes them. This is what Jesus is giving his life for. He's giving his life so that the body politic of the gospel can live. Extremely important. And that brokenness then feeds the body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. Again, this common cup, as it were, is a sign of brotherhood. 
the point of the table in the New Testament, and it is the reason that Paul had a showdown with Peter in Galatians and in Acts. It's because Paul was livid and he confronted Peter openly to his face that he would not break bread with someone who was a different religion than him or from a different group than him. Paul's point is that if you want to keep kosher or you're circumcised and they're not, that's fine. What's the difference? You can still sit together. They can eat bacon and, I don't know, you eat fish. What's the big deal? Now, this may be anachronistic. I may be retrojecting into it. But when we have Jewish law about wine, later on, this is from 150, 200 years after this time, so it may or may not apply. But there are all kinds of rules about wine in particular because the pagans would offer the first bit of wine to their god and then that would dedicate and bless the wine so that all would drink with that wine dedicated to that god. So you always had to be careful that you didn't leave wine in the hands of Gentiles unattended because they might dip a little bit off to their god which would then ruin the rest of the wine because it would be dedicated to another god. The fact that they're all drinking together shows brotherhood in the same, as you said, body politic. They are all together with the same core beliefs. Now, this, like I said, digs against them because he just a moment ago said, one of you is going to betray me. And then he lays it on thick about how this food is what he gave of himself. This wine is what binds us together, which also comes of my suffering. So he makes the betrayal even deeper. And as I've been spending so much time in Hosea, when I hear about the bread and the wine, the grain and the new wine are, is mentioned all the time in Hosea and in Deuteronomy, these are the things that God provides, that the people thought Baal provided. And understanding where these came from, where these elements arise from, that is what determined the people's loyalty or betrayal in Hosea 1 and Hosea 2. I don't understand modern Christians, Richard. I don't. Because when I go visit other churches from many different backgrounds and traditions and denominations, when I go to visit, I hear people talking constantly about love and grace. But they don't deal with love and grace the way scripture deals with it. They deal with it like it's a magic potion from a Disney movie. As though God sprinkles his grace and all your problems disappear and everything is wonderful and you feel loved and cherished and everything is fine. I don't know what religion that is, but it has nothing to do with the Bible. In the Bible that I read, God provides his grace and it comes with a warning. I showed you mercy. You had better show others mercy. I showed you loyalty. You had better not betray me. It would be better for you that you had not been born should you betray me. Loyalty and betrayal. These are the major themes that we see here in Mark. They are major themes that we see in Hosea. I don't think it's a coincidence, not because the author of Mark was reading Hosea in particular, but because these are the themes from Genesis 2 and 3 all the way through loyalty and betrayal everything revolves around those there is a price for grace you paul says were bought with a price in galatians you were paid for you were purchased you were redeemed 
the way you redeem a coupon at Target. That's what it means to redeem a slave in the Roman Empire. So you were purchased in order to be a slave in God's household. He gives you food. He gives you shelter. He wiped away your debt. He's overlooking all your transgressions and mistakes. But now that you're in his household, you are accountable. And you have to behave a certain way. And you have duties to perform. This is grace in the Bible. It's something fundamentally different. And that's why the parent-child relationship in the United States has gone haywire. People no longer understand their relationship to their parents or their children correctly because of this false idea of grace. When my children fight over clothes and they say, this is my shirt, no, this is my shirt, I shut them down. You didn't pay for that shirt. You didn't wash that shirt and fold it and put it away. And even if you have a job, you wouldn't have a job unless I or your mother drove you to your job. And even if you get a car, you think you're going to get your first car without me. And even when you eventually get a job, who provided your education? This is grace. It's not for the sake of the ego of the parent. It's for the sake of the ego of the child, that they would understand that everything is a gift. And they are entering into other people's labor, other people's service. So have some shame. And instead of fighting with your sibling about who owns this shirt, say, thank you, Papa. Thank you, Mama, for the shirt. And then when you see a kid at school who doesn't have a nice shirt, give them your shirt. That's grace. Someone spent their time and spent their money to get you this thing. How much time, how much effort is it just to say something back? Out of respect to the time and effort they put into it. Whether you like the thing or not, that's not relevant. Whether you're going to use it, you just recognize the grace that was given to you. That's all you're doing. Like you say, Father, when did it go from a gift to mine? This is the problem. Judas uses Jesus as if he is his. Judas uses Jesus as if Jesus belongs to him. And he can use him in order to make the thing happen he wants to have happen. Where does he get off talking this way? But everyone uses Jesus this way. Everyone uses Jesus to get the thing to happen that they want to have happen. Everyone. We are all Judas in this way and that we all use Jesus. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. It is being poured out as a libation and offering and it's being pushed further beyond just this table. This is not an insider meal, and that has to be stressed. I go back to Galatians and the showdown between Peter and Paul. Paul is very frustrated, and we mentioned this about Romans also. He's frustrated with his own people that they are not bearing fruit. They are not taking the Torah to the Gentiles. And for Paul... When Peter will not sit with someone out of fear of being reprimanded by James, it's a triple whammy. A, you are jeopardizing the gospel to the Gentiles. B, you are not acting correct towards the Gentiles. Just on that basic level, who are you to shun somebody? And C, you're committing both of those sins because you fear men and you don't fear God. So we must stress this point, that the blood of Jesus is being poured out for many. His blood is 
what establishes the covenant between himself and the people. This agreement that we're all agreeing to, who's the one with the skin in the game? Jesus. Jesus. Literally. I mean, it's not literally a game, but it's literally his skin. Right. Truly, I say to you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. This is it, friends. This drink means everything to me. This is the gladiator the night before he has to step into the arena. But he's not drinking to Caesar. He's not pledging himself to Caesar. He's pledging himself to the Roman polity, beginning with the 12 tribes and then everyone else. That is the function of the many. You know, hearing Father Paul talk about the rise of Scripture and hearing these texts, it becomes more and more clear to me that the people who wrote these Gospels, the Apostles, were Jews who were Romans, as it says of Paul. He was a Roman citizen. So they are thinking about the well-being of the Roman people because they see the power of the gospel for Rome. And in a sense, as an American, I identify with them. You and I are American citizens, but we're children of the book. And we see the life that scripture proposes for our society. And we're struggling to find a way to share it because the traditional vehicles of the gospel within American society are broken. They've been corrupted. People go to church, but they don't hear the gospel. They hear someone's statue of Jesus speaking, not the unstatue of the scriptural God. So it's in a way a kinship that I feel now with the writers. And you see it here. So again, I want to stress this point. It's for many. And the kingdom to which Jesus refers is the kingdom to which we all aspire and we hope. One in which, with respect to Americans, Muslims and Christians, atheists and believers, black people and white people, male and female, can all sit together around the table of God in silence feasting on the gift of his wisdom. And if I can even say this, this is the last time that Jesus is going to be the head of the table. Which means the disciples are even under more pressure because if Jesus isn't there to hold their hand, what are they going to do if they haven't been studying scripture? After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. This, of course, is Zechariah, Richard, a book of which you spoke lengthily. A lot happens in Zechariah. I think the point here, though, is that God is allowing the shepherd to be struck so that the followers of the shepherd can be refined in the fire. Right. They have to learn how to follow the correct voice. Once their shepherd is stricken, as we were talking before the episode, you said, Father, this is their idol that's now being taken away from them. Now, how do they follow the correct voice if the voice that they always followed is now gone? And that's what they have to figure out how to do. And all of you will be offended because of me this night. All of you are going to fall away. So he says, one of you is going to betray me. Is it me? Is it me? Is it me? And then he doesn't answer them. 
people's imaginations are always their worst enemy, and Jesus uses this very well. So he tells them, you're all going to offend me. You're all going to betray me. You're all going to leave me right after I gave you my body and gave you my blood, all of my labor, all of the gifts that have been given to you, all are for your sake so that you can follow me and then provide for the next generation. But you're all going to betray it and you're all going to leave it behind. And now what do you do? It's very powerful, and I'm sure we'll talk about this when we get into chapter 16, but I'll just mention it here that when they run to the tomb in Mark, they do not find a statue of Jesus. They find a stone that has been carved out, but it's hollow. This is so important. You have to actually hear the Gospels, not imagine them. Because if you imagine them, you're going to make them into a fleshly teaching, which is why in every church in North America you find a statue of Jesus. I don't mean a literal statue. I mean the statues that people build in their heads with their different theologies. You run to the tomb and it's empty because the biblical God cannot be depicted. It's whatever you make with your hands to use Jesus to do the thing that you want. If you make the story in your head into a human story, the way people fashion their gods in their mind as a projection of their own ego, Jesus is going to rise, come back down to earth, and live happily ever after. But that's not where the gospel leaves you. You are told that he was raised, but you don't see him, and you don't have access to him. You only have his teaching. It's the anti-idolatry school of the Bible. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Notice, he's being raised not to hang out with his friends, but to go where he's been going since chapter 1 of Mark, away from Jerusalem, out into the Galilee of the nations. Now, please, I have to ask all of you who happen to be scholars or archaeologists, I really don't care who lived in Galilee in late antiquity because this is a story. You can prove to me that Galilee was a kingdom of Jewish believers. I don't care because the way Galilee functions in the New Testament, it's Galilee of the nations. It's literature. You're not going to convince me with archaeology what Galilee means for the writers of the New Testament. In fact, it may be that there's a reason they chose a town that may have been very Jewish as their symbol for the nations. We don't know. It's a good study for a book. Go figure it out. But you can't use archaeology to prove or disprove scripture. And we've known the importance of Galilee from Mark because this is the place where Jesus began to sow the seed. So, of course, he's going to sprout out of Galilee because that's where the original seed was sown. He sowed the seed and he's the fruit that is born by the plant that he sowed. So of course he's going to appear there again. That's how we see the cyclical nature of Mark. Again, we'll get into that later on. But he plants the seed in chapter 1, and then he appears there after he's killed. But Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, yet I will not. Now, again, if you're listening to scripture and you understand the way Jesus is doing business at the table, by now you've figured out that Jesus may or may not be speaking about Judas when it comes to the betrayal. The point is, we don't know. What we do know is that Peter, in the letters of Paul and in the Acts, betrays Paul. 
And we know that when you betray Paul, it's not Paul we're concerned with, it's Paul's gospel, which is the proclamation of Jesus Christ. So who is betraying whom in the story? Peter, we know in the gospel of Mark, denies Christ the way he denied Paul's teaching. Metaphor, friends. It's a powerful story when you read all of these books together. And you understand what's really going on. This is why if you don't understand how business happens in the Middle East over a cup of tea, you can't understand scripture. You think you're sitting down talking about how nice the tea is and how delicious the sweets are and how wonderful the waiter was. When in fact, like Tom Sawyer, <laughs> the person sitting across from you at the table was talking you out of your shirt and you didn't even know it and you gave it away willingly. This is exactly how the New Testament works. This is how Jesus is dealing with his disciples at the meal. Is it Judas who's the betrayer? Is it Peter? We know that Judas sold out over some money. But now it wasn't clear who Jesus was accusing and we're going to hear that Peter might betray him. And we know from the broader story that Peter betrayed Paul. I could go on and on, but you see how it works. It's a language of metaphor. Scripture is a language of metaphor. It's black and white, but not black and white in the shallow sense of American brass tacks. It's brass tacks, but not in a shallow way. You have to understand its language. It's not a secret language. It's an open language. And it's very easy to learn, but you have to keep reading it to understand it. Right. And one thing that's so amazing about it, too, you know, you have to keep reading it over and over again. Scripture does not deny that human beings know how to say the correct thing. It knows very well that people know how to say the right thing. What it questions is how well they can actually follow through. So Peter, of course, is saying the right thing here. But we'll have to see how it actually ends up. And Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. Now, three times is important because that is how you make a statement true. Is you say it over and over again. You could say Beetlejuice once. But once you say Beetlejuice three times, it means you're serious and Beetlejuice comes before you. You say it three times if you want it to happen. You say it three times to establish it as a fact. And three is the number of assuredness. It's the number of the witness. You don't bring two people as a witness. You bring three so that if there's any disagreement, we can take a vote and one side will win in the argument. Peter has no hope. The more I read this, the more I'm thinking Judas might not be as bad as everyone thinks he is. I also don't know if it shows that Peter is as good as we think he is. Exactly. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. Thanks very much, Dr. Ben. Thank you, Father. The Bible as Literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.